I hope by the time you're hearing this, you've already enjoyed a wonderful Thanksgiving meal, perhaps a post-meal nap or two. All of us eat like hobbits on Thanksgiving, uh, and I, I wish nothing less than all of the first and second breakfasts and dinners you can you can you can enjoy. This Sunday, obviously, is the first Sunday of Advent, and so my reflections today are going to be on that theme, on on the theme of the coming of God and our preparations, such as can be made for the coming of a God whose very life is surprise. I won't say too much before I turn to the text, but I, a quick framing. And then two poems. First, Advent is a time of waiting. Advent is a time of waiting for God. Advent is a time of waiting for God to act. Of course, we know that God is not changing, that God has already acted, that God has already done all there is to do and is doing all there is to do and will do all there is to do. So when we talk about waiting for God to act, we're not talking about waiting for God to be different. We're not talking about wanting a change in God or anything new from God. What we're wanting is something new in the world, something new brought about by the unchanging goodness of God being allowed, being given space in the world to bring about the change that needs to be made. That, that will come to prayer later in, the, in our conversation, but that's what we're praying for. Not for God to change, not for God to be a better God than God has been, but for the world to be opened up to the unchanging goodness of God so that all things, including ourselves and our neighbors, all that is here with us, that all things will be brought up into their fullness, brought up into what God desires for them and Nothing less than that. So with that, that kind of framing, let me turn then to the first poem that I want to share, which is by Kevin John Hart, who is, an, if you don't know, is an Australian philosopher, poet, theologian, teaches at the University of Virginia. If you don't know his work, I, I encourage you to get to know it. This is an, a poem entitled Prayer. Oh, come in any way you want. In morning sunlight, fooling in the leaves, or in thick bouts of rain that soak my head, because of what the darkness said. Or come, though far too slowly for my eye to see, like a dark hair that fades to gray. Come with the wind that wraps my house, or winter light that slants upon a page, because the beast is stirring in its cage. Or come in raw and ragged smells of gum leaves dangling down at noon. Or in the undertow of love when she's away. Because a night creeps through the day. Come as you used to, years ago, when I first fell for you. In the deep calm of an autumn morning, beginning with the cooing of a dove. Because of love, the lightest love. Or if that's not your way these days... Because of me, because of something dead in me, come like a jagged knife into my gut. 
because your touch will surely cut. Come any way you want, but come. The poem opens, as you heard, in nature. One critic pointed out that the, the opening lines, the opening two stanzas or three, sound like something from Thoreau. I mean, they're they're transcendentalist, almost, uh, romantically celebrating the wonders of nature. They're, they're warm, right? The morning sunlight or the thick bouts of rain. That, that line, those lines, for whatever reason, bring up images from the movie The Piano for me, the way that the rain scenes are shot in that perhaps because of Hart being from Australia, whatever the case might be, I'm not sure why that image comes to mind, but you, you start with this kind of warmth and nature in its wildness, the, the, the ragged smell of gum leaves, and then you shift pretty quickly to what sounds as, as a call to a, to a lover. Come as you used to years ago when I first fell for you in the deep calm of an autumn morning. So we've moved from the that morning light through the winter light. Now we're in an autumn morning. And so the seasons are kind of out of order. And we've shifted from a kind of romantic uh, sense of nature to to something more uh, more human something sweeter more romantic in in that kind of classical sense and of course you've you've got that image of the cooing dove which speaks of the lightest love but then at the end we we get a, a, an even sharper surprise and that is we're on the we're on the operating table so we're out of the the warm rain and into the hospital and on the operating table the surgery is about to begin to cut out that something dead in me and the, and of course in the final lines of the poem he says come any way you want but come and and so what the poem gives us as Hart's best poems often do, is, is a way of praying for God to be God. I mean, that, that's the heart of it. God, be God to me. Fulfill my desires as may be best for me. Give me what you know I need. And inviting God simply to be God. And, and that, I think, is, again, the heart of Advent spirituality, that's the heart of this season. What the, the, the truth this season needs to teach us is that we are to wait on God, but not for a change in God, but for the unchanging goodness of God. We're, we're to wait until we're ready to accept the God who's been waiting on us. We're to wait until we can wait like God waits on us. There's a, a friend, Nick, shared with me this exchange. I, I, I've never read it anywhere, but he he shared it with me, and I love it, that Mother Teresa was asked once if, if she about her life of prayer. And she says, oh, yes, yes, I pray. And they asked, what, you know, what is that? What does that mean? What is, what, what are you saying to God? And she's like, oh, no, no, no. 
I listen, right? I listen. And the response back is, oh, well, what is he saying? If you're listening, what is he saying? And her response again, which as it was told to me was quick, was, oh, no, no, he's listening too. And that, that sense of kind of two people present to one another, truly listening, truly hearing, not just talking one after the other, but truly hearing one another. Like there's something about that, I think, that that gets at what it means to wait as God waits. And that, I think, is what Hart's poem is calling up for us. And so now, quickly, a poem of mine. I'll say less about this one, and then we'll turn to the texts. It's called, Christ, You Made Me Wait. Christ, you made me wait so long. I could not help but let patience have her perfectly wearying, wearing work. And now, now worn, I, I can, I can leave you. I can leave you waiting too and lacking nothing. All I'll say about this, and then as I, pro- as I keep promising, I'll turn to the text, is that I, I'm, I'm thinking here about, among other things, James, of course, let patience have her perfect work. I'm also thinking the way about the ways in, in which we have to learn to be patient with God and be patient with the way God is God to us rather than the way we want God to be God to us. And that there is a way in which that has to wear us down. Nicole Nordeman has that gorgeous song about the, the rolling river God, right? The God who is the river washing over us. We're the stones who are being smoothed, worn down by the movement of God in our lives. And that, that kind of almost glacial epochal movement of God, the long, slow, you know, that, that famous line, above all, trust in the slow work of God. There's, there's another poem by, by, by Hart, um, which he, another prayer, which he talks about the ways in which God's time is geological, right? That God is the God of all things. And, and time is, you know, not not the span of my life or even the span of human existence, the span of the cosmos. And, and yet that God is fully present at every moment in that time and is in, in the most beautiful way wearing us down and making us so that we can wait as God waits. And there's a way in which turning from God then, I can leave you, I can leave you waiting too, as the poem says, there's a way in which turning from God is the way we turn to God. It's the way we turn into God, right? So in a very real sense, turning away from God is what turns us into God-likeness. I could say a lot about this, but I'll, I'll draw attention just to a couple of notes. One is the Bloomhart, Christoph Bloomhart talks about the two conversions every Christian has to experience a conversion from the world to God, and then from God back to the world. I talk about this a little bit in Surprised by God, that there has to be a movement of our life. And this movement is is not, 
simply during periods of our life. It's not as if one movement happens for a while and then we shift away from it to another. Both of these movements are in a sense always happening, even though one may be more prevalent at any given time, may take prevalence over the other at any given time. But there's this movement toward God, this movement of of what in the tradition is called contemplation, uh, where we are giving God our face, right? We're, we're turning to God and we're attending to God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. But in order to love our neighbors as ourselves, there is a sense in which our attention has to shift from God, from the act of worship, from the moment of prayer and devotion, from contemplation to action, where we're now, again, in in a sense, turning from God to our neighbor. But if we have been with God faithfully, then abiding there, we've become and are becoming like the God who's been present with us, abiding with us. And now we turn to our neighbor, not from God, but with God and in God to be Christ to them. And, and that is what I'm trying to get at in that, that final line that I can leave you waiting to and lacking nothing. And of course, the ambiguity there is intentional. God is lacking nothing. He has always and will always lack nothing. But because I've attended to God, I can attend to God in such a way that when I turn, when I leave God waiting, I can lack nothing, right? which is patience, perfect work. So with all of that said, which is far too much, but I'm not going to go back and record it again. Uh, you might have skipped ahead. And if you did skip ahead, this is this is a good moment to have skipped too. So let me turn to the texts. I'll start with the Jeremiah 33, the Old, the Old Testament reading for the day, in which God promises to fulfill his promise. I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel. I, I, there's a lot I'd like to say about Jeremiah. I, I'm, I'm especially drawn to Jeremiah among the prophets and those who, who know me, and especially those who love me. And of course, those are two different groupings. Well, not entirely different groupings. Uh, I assume all the people who know me love me, but not all those who know me um, love me. All those who love me know me. Now I've confused myself. I do neither know myself nor love myself well enough. So hopefully you, you've skipped ahead to this point <laughs> rather than the immediately previous one. Jeremiah fascinates me. And I mean, fascinates is not the right word. Um, Jeremiah calls up his story, calls up something in me, um, something pretty visceral. And this, this part of the book of Jeremiah is, is deeply hopeful. But in the context of the book of, uh, of a whole, it it's also painful because you know that Jeremiah is speaking this promise with his own doom already assured. So this is, you know, we, we all love that line in Jeremiah about, I know the plans I have for you, which is just from a few chapters before this. But Jeremiah, also in saying those words, knows that those are promises to Israel, to Judah, that will be fulfilled in the future, but it will be a future in which he will not live. He, he will be dead. He, he is the prophet, as 
Ricky Moore taught me, he's the prophet of lost causes. What he's trying to do won't get done. But what God is doing will get done. God will fulfill his promise, but in a future Jeremiah will not know. At least not apart from the prophetic word that has been shared with him. So I, I, I could say a lot here about what it means for God to talk about fulfilling the promise. The God who makes promises and keeps them. And that fundamentally, theologically, the question is, can God make promises? And can God keep the promises he makes? Th those are like fun. And I learned this from Robert Jensen, obviously. Those are fundamental theological questions. And if you separate God's nature from his character, in other words, many of us have been raised in which theology is all about the character of God, not the nature of God. And character in the sense of faithfulness and goodness and justice and meekness, etc., like those are character qualities, we might say. But nature is eternity, infinity, omnipotence, omniscience. And even though we know that those categories matter, they, they rarely reach our prayers or our preaching in any meaningful way. But it's it's absolutely essential. And this this is you know not a not a time to, to I'm not going to take a lot of time with this, but it's absolutely essential to realize that God's character and nature must be identical. You can't talk about God being just if you do not also say that God is eternally just and infinitely just, because otherwise God would be doomed to the same fate we're doomed to, death, to, to nothingness. And, and God would be tragic if God could make promises and would make promises that he could not keep. And it's his nature that assures us that he can keep the promises he has made. And it's his character that tells us that he's a God who makes promises, right? And that he makes promises that are not conditioned on our worthiness, but on his devotion to us, on his delight in us and his, his desires for us. And, and you can see this some in, in what he says to Jeremiah, I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel. And in, in our circles, talk about promise, talk about fulfillment can, can easily and often does float free of the text of Scripture, the story of Jesus, the Word of God, because it floats free of the story of Israel. And here's where Willie Jennings has been enormously helpful, I think for me and for, for hopefully for many of you. But what Willie Jennings returns to again and again and again is that the problems in the church always come from, they're, all, they're always ultimately rooted in forgetfulness of Israel's story. We forget, he says, that we're inside Israel's story. That in the language of Paul from Romans, we've been grafted into a tree whose roots are the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So to put it, bluntly, everything that's happening in your life and mine, everything that's happening in our lives is because of God's friendship with Abraham. And if we ever forget that, we miss something fundamental about the character of this God whose nature is life and love and light. So he says, I've, I've made this promise to the house of Israel. And not only Israel, but just, just a quick note about this. He says, I, I have made, I, I will fulfill the promise I have made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
And of course, the, part of what's astounding about this is that there, there should not have been the split between Israel and Judah. There should be the one people of God. And, and what I hear in this line is God saying that God is faithful to us even in our unfaithfulness, that he, he recognizes that we can affect this world, we can do damage in this world that rends things that should not have been rent, that, that breaks what should not have been broken. But he is the one who can heal and can hold it together. I think about that in, in the Cimmerillion, Tolkien tells the story. I, I, it's been years since I've read this, so I may not get it exactly right. Um, feel free to, to correct me on, on the details. And I, I'll try to look it up myself afterwards. But again, I'm not going to stop the recording or, or re-record it. So you, you'll, you'll just have to deal with the unedited version here. But he says the, the story of these angels who who make the dwarves, and an angel in particular, I think, who makes the dwarves and should not have done so, should not, should not have, was not called to do it. And yet once it's done, it has to be honored. There, there's a story, a biblical story, Joshua and Israel, they're, they're set to sweep through Canaan to conquer all of their enemies, to, to claim this land, so to speak. And the Gibeonites trick them. And once it's discovered that they've been tricked, Joshua prays, you know, should I, should I destroy them? And God's word is, no, 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 you've made a covenant. Right? That you, you've, you've included them. So, and there are countless examples of this. This it's taken up again by Jesus healing the daughter of a Canaanite woman. All these ways in which God works with the world we've broken and allows allows what we've made, even when we shouldn't have made it, to have a place in what he's accomplishing. So obviously it's those are deep, deep waters and dark waters. But I think it's an important reminder here, hinted at in this text, right, that God is faithful to fulfill his promises because of his promise to Israel, but also his promise to Judah. And so he says, I will cause it. And this raises the question, and I'm not going to spend, again, a lot of time on it, but it raises the question of God's agency. If we're right that God is always acting, that God is always doing everything that God is capable of doing, that God does not hold some powers in reserve, that God is not sometimes doing some good, but in the future will do more good, then what does it mean for him to say, I will cause? I mean, is that not a change in God? I think, I think the best way to think of this is, again, God unchangingly is acting on creation, but God's unchanging action on creation, various creatures respond to that action in ways that change them and therefore bring change in the world. So, again, obviously mysterious. I'm not going to solve all of those problems of the, the causal joint between the divine act and creaturely act. But I think it's important to stress that God is a God who makes promises, and he's a God who keeps promises because his character and his nature are one. That he's made a covenant to Abraham 
a covenant that he will keep even when Abraham's children break apart and establish separate kingdoms, and that he will continue to be God to all of us, as he was to Abraham, until we yield. And in our yielding, the unchanging goodness of God changes us, and in changing us, changes all things. And so, with that, let me turn to the, the New Testament reading, First Thessalonians 3, which is about prayer. And Paul insisting that we pray night and day, earnestly, that we may see you. That there's a there's a, a praying for the opportunity to meet with them face to face. There's so much about that that I think is astounding, right? What what what's being prayed for there is is not for a change in God. I mean, everyone, all of us know that you know prayer changes things. No prayer changes. Us, it doesn't change things. All, all of those kind of cliches around prayer and what prayer affects in the world, what prayer brings about. But notice here, what Paul is saying is that he and his ministry team are praying continually and earnestly that it might be possible for them to be with the Thessalonians. And I think, that, again, this is not exerting pressure on God. It's not a case of trying to convince God that this is, in fact, a good idea. But what's happening here in prayer is by voicing this request to God, voicing this request in the presence of God, pressure is being exerted on created things so that the the unchanging goodness of God can break through the change they're asking for into the world. And that it will come in presence, see you face to face. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's ironic that I'm saying this to you, and you're listening to it on this medium because that's something like what the experience was for Paul and the Thessalonians. That there's a he's praying that something more than this would be possible, right? And not, again, not just praying it in some lighthearted or cliched way praying continuously and earnestly that we might see you face to face and restore what is lacking in your faith. And I mean, there's a lot to say about what is lacking, and I'll come back to that in a moment. But there's this kind of recognition that prayer is necessary to bring us into one another's presence so that when we are present, we can do what can only be done in that moment, right? So there, there's, a, there's a way in which Advent is not just about waiting for the coming of God. Advent is about waiting for the coming of, of our neighbor, right? It's, it's about Paul praying to be able to come to the Thessalonians, praying for their Advent, praying for them to receive his Advent. And again, this is to go back to the heart poem, the God we know is the God of nature, the God of warm sunshine and winter light and bouts of rain, and the God of the lover, the God of the, the child and the parent, the, the God of the friend, the God of flesh and blood, as well as sun and rain, and the God we know in all things. So, so here, God is coming to us in our neighbor, but also there's a way in which, as I said, you have to turn from God to your neighbor. So I, I, I think 
in this Advent and every Advent season, we, we have to come back again and again to this, this need to recognize the coming of God in our neighbor, but never to reduce our neighbor to simply an avatar for God. You know, in the circles I grew up in, we would sometimes talk about, you know, loving the image of God in people. And I understand what's being said, right? That there's a way in which we should do right by everyone because they bear the image of God. And again, in a certain context, that's a faithful way to talk. But I I think the better thing to say is we should do right by someone else because they are who they are. It's it's not simply that they belong to God. I mean, there's there's a kind of logic there that suggests we're only good to our neighbor because we might have to answer to God for it. And and while that's true in a sense, it's also deeply immature and deeply, uh, I think the right word for it, a, a kind of, there's something really slavish about it, something um, controlling and manipulative about only being good to others because of what it will mean for the way we relate to God. I, I need, I need to realize that I should love you because you are you. And I can do that for the same reason that you are who you are. God has made that possible. And it's the the word I was looking for a moment ago is it's not instrumental. I don't simply love you because that is a way of loving God. I don't love you so that God will notice that I love you and approve of me. I love you because you are you. And in doing that, I'm most aligned with the God who loves me so that I am myself. So one more quick word about prayer, and then we'll turn to the gospel. I, I I don't want to make too much of it, but I I think there's a way in which we need to hear this this indecisiveness. That's not quite the right word. For whatever reason, I'm struggling to find the words I want here. But we are praying for what might happen. Again, not because... God is undependable or because God is unpredictable even. And not because we're afraid we're asking for the wrong thing, but because we simply don't know when the world is going to come into alignment with the unchanging goodness of God that's always acting. You know, in, in all of that space and all that time, God is fully present We don't know when the moment is going to come, when the fullness of time is going to arrive. And so we pray toward that moment, not to change God as if God were going to be a better God because we've raised a concern, but because in our prayer, in our voicing to God of what it is that we want, we are mysteriously participating in the change that has to happen in the world so that these things might happen. And they will happen. We're assured of that ultimately they will happen because God is the God who keeps his promises. And he's the God who keeps his promises out of his faithfulness to his friends, out of his love for his children, out of his devotion to his bride, his spouse. We know that that's going to happen, but we don't know when it's going to happen in relation to our lives. So like Jeremiah, we're we're certain when we proclaim the word of the Lord, we know that this will happen, right? God will do this. What I'm not certain about and cannot be certain about is how the ways of God 
will work with my ways and the ways of those around me and the ways of the world that I live in in such a way that I see that fullness breaking in in my lifetime. It will come, but I don't know when and I don't know how. Not because God is unpredictable, again, or because God is whimsical or rash or sometimes fully present and other times not, but but because change takes time. God makes time for us and lets us take all the time we need and lets time itself take the time it needs to come to the place of full openness, a kind of complete vulnerability and transparency to God. That is its its purpose. And and so prayer is an asking for that. There's there's a line, I'll raise this and then and then move to the gospel. There's a line that Jesus says, it's in Mark and in Matthew, talking about the coming of the Son of Man, which is what we're about to hear in Luke 21, in which he warns them to, or encourages them to pray that this coming will not occur in the winter. Pray that this will not occur in the winter. So there's a way in which there's a, there's a, the coming is definite. It will come. You need to pray that it does not come in a time of deadness, in a time in which we're not ready. Pray that it occurs in the light, not the darkness, in the warmth of openness, not in the dead of winter. And I, I think that that's at the heart of what we're praying, not, again, to make God a better God or to talk ourselves into thinking as God thinks, but to in the grasp in, in the in the grasping of God, in the wrestling with God, to have an effect on the things around us. So we know this is what Jesus does, right? When he's talking to to Mary and Martha and then begins to pray at the mouth of the tomb of Lazarus, he's doing it because his prayer is affecting what's happening around him. It's it's loosening the hold of death, not only on Lazarus's body, but on the minds and hearts of these people gathered around the tomb. So all that said, the gospel text. There's, I'm not going to read it now, just going to point out a couple of lines. The The reference to the, to the fig tree and the other trees is a callback, I think, to the Jeremiah story where God asked Jeremiah what he sees. And I think we hear in Jesus' statement that this generation will not pass away until all things have taken place, and then immediately says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not. That what he's what he's pointing to here is the certainty that God will be God. God will be all in all. The goodness of God will become the goodness of all creatures. All things will be not only redeemed, but perfected into their fullness, brought up into the full flourishing. I know some people hate the word flourishing, but I can't think of a better way of naming what God wants for all things, from camels and the sands of the desert, to water, to air, to time itself, to to your relationship with your children, to your being and mine, to all things, right? And what we've made too. I mean, Everything that we've made, our songs, our poems, at least the ones that are worth saving, all of them will be brought up into their fullness. Like 
flourishing infinitely as God's own life flourishes. And that is certain, right? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. That what God's word is sent forth to do, it does. But we don't know how that how we'll experience it in our lifetime, how much of that fullness will break through in my life. And that has a lot to do, again, not a change in God, not God withholding blessings until I'm ready to receive them. But I am only ready to receive the fullness of God as I lift up my head, as Jesus puts it here. And you're, you're going to see all of this trouble around you, he says. Jesus warns them, like, all of this trouble is going to come. Lift up your heads. And I'm not going to get sidetracked into talking about the culture wars and all the ways in which so many of us right now are are being distracted by the the upheaval in our culture, which is real, I think. I mean, it's exaggerated by social media and all of that, but it's it, there are very real disruptions there, no doubt. But in the midst of all this trouble, Jesus says, Lift your heads. This, this to me, this is this is what it means to be a person of faith, a man or woman of faith. It's to say, whatever difficulty is there, whatever trouble is present, I'm going to to lift my head and look for Jesus. I'm going to to open my eyes. I'm going to listen even more intensely, so that whatever the noise is, whatever the hateful, spiteful comments that are being thrown back and forth, whatever the, however the heathen rage, I'm going to. I'm going to pique my interest. I'm going to turn my attention sharply, keenly toward it because Christ is breaking through there. And again, as I've said over and over in this podcast, not just today, but in previous weeks, like the coming of Jesus is not something that's down the timeline from us in the future, in the way that Christmas is in the future or in the way that New Year's is in the future. The coming of God is here. It's present. It's right here and right now. It's happening in this moment and to every moment. That's why Jesus can assure you that every eye right, will, will see him and that the, no generation will pass away until all things have taken place because the coming of Jesus is something that is the fullness of those generations. And so we need to be alert at all times. And, you know, I grew up in churches in which this alertness was alertness about not falling into sin. Like be alert so that you don't fall to lust or you don't fall to, to greed or to gluttony or to anger. Like it, it was alertness was about guarding your heart against sins. But here the, the alertness is alertness to the presence of God hidden in all of what must seem like absence, right? The absence of God because of the presence of upheaval and betrayal and corruption and destruction. And yet be alert, like lift up your heads, like turn your interest toward this keenly and pray and notice what you're praying for. Pray that you may have the strength to stand before the Son of Man. And it's one way of hearing that line is, Pray that you're the kind of person who can stand in the presence of Jesus, as if Jesus cannot stand you, as if you need to be ready because there, there is something awful, something horrifying about the coming of Jesus. But I, I, 
again, I think that's a mistake. We need to pray to be able to stand in the presence because Jesus wants to meet us face to face. He's come here seeking us. He is always coming here seeking us, coming to speak with us. And to pray to have the strength is, it's yes, we need strength to stand before him, not because he's somehow annoyed with us or put off with us or put off by us or impatient with us, but because he is our fullness. And the intimidation we feel is the intimidation of glory and goodness in its fullness. And we fear that we don't have what it takes to reach that. I don't know if any of you have seen The the Green Knight. I, I just watched it again today with my daughter. And it's it's such an incredible film. And it's, it is a, a medieval morality play, more or less. And it is all about a man, a young man, failing and failing and failing and failing until he finally finds the strength to stand, in this case, kneel, and bow his head, right? Open himself up. I won't spoil the movie. But it is, again, all about having the strength to be who you are called to be and the ways in which we doubt ourselves. And I think that that's what is being offered to us here. Keep praying until you have the strength to stand, right? Job, this is one way of reading the the book of Job is that he falls too soon in the end, right? He, He falls and says, I hate myself. I repent in dust and ashes. I despise myself. But that's not what God's looking for, right? Repentance, yes, yes. But not self-hate, not not to despise yourself. God wants us to stand. And that's one way of reading when, when God says to, to Job, you know, stand up, face me like a man. It's not God being toxically masculine. It's not, you know, God is beating his chest and demanding Job be manly. It's, it's a way of saying, Job, step into yourself. Step into the fullness of what it means for you to be you. you. Be yourself here with me. That's what I want. That's what you you need. And so God is making, making that demand. Jeremiah, uh, I mean, Origen, in his commentary on Jeremiah, his servants really, uh, has this astounding passage, astounding passage where he talks about the ways in which God says to us what we need to hear in order to draw us up to it. Let me read just a bit of it. He's commenting specifically on the line, you have deceived me and I was deceived. You have deceived me and I was deceived. And so he says, perhaps then, as a father wishes to deceive a son in his own interest while he is still a boy, since he cannot be helped any other way unless he is deceived, or as a healer makes it his business to deceive the patient who cannot be cured unless he receives words of deceit. So it is also for the God of the universe, since what is prescribed has to help the race of men. Let the healer say to the patient, it is necessary that you have surgery. You must be cauterized, but you must suffer severely and that the pa- that patient would not continue. But sometimes he says another thing and he hides that surgery, the cutting knife, under the sponge, and again he conceals, as I shall call it, under the honey, the nature of the bitter and the annoying drug, wanting not to mislead, but to heal the one who is cured. So in other words, 
if you simply say, I'm going to have to cauterize this wound or I'm going to have to cut you open, the patient runs from the surgery, leaps off the table and is out the door. But the wise surgeon, and we've all seen this in the emergency room with doctors and our kids, for instance, or we've done it with our kids or had it done to us by our parents in which, you know, taste it, it's not that bad, right? When the medicine is incredibly bitter, but we need it. We need it. That's what he's saying God is doing. And I, I think there's something exactly right about, about that, the ways in which God is always being God to us and is being God to us in a way we can receive in that moment so that we are opened up in the coming moments to, to greater and greater fullness. So back to the text as, as I wrap up. We're praying to have the strength to stand to receive the coming of the one who is the, the Son of Man. Certain that his word will be brought to pass, right? So in, in Advent, our waiting is not wishful. We're, no, we're not wishing for God to come. We know God is coming. What we're trying to do is be alert to the way in which God is coming now. And so I'll, I'll end with another poem by Malcolm Geit, O Sapientia. I cannot think unless I have been thought, nor can I speak unless I have been spoken. I cannot teach except as I am taught, or break the bread except as I am broken. O mind behind the mind through which I seek, O light within the light by which I see, O word beneath the words with which I speak, O founding unfound wisdom finding me, O sounding song whose depth is sounding me, O memory of time reminding me, my ground of being always grounding me, my maker's bounding line defining me, come hidden wisdom, come with all you bring, come to me now, disguised as everything. Come to me now. And that, again, is precisely what Hart taught us to pray. And of course, he learned it from Jesus and Paul and Jeremiah and all the saints. Invite God to be God. We don't need another God. We don't need God to do more or other than God has already done. We just need God to be God. And we need to open our lives up to God in God's fullness. Let God be God fully. And the more we can do that, the more we become the advent of God. And so I'll leave you with this prayer. God, as we begin to turn our hearts toward your coming yet again, knowing you're already here, help us to lift up our heads. Help us to be alert, not for fear of sin, not for fear of falling into nothingness or fear of falling into failure but alert because we know you're coming near alert because we know you're going to surprise us alert in delight not fear and let us become god your advent to our neighbors to those most in need we pray this in christ's name amen